Are you ready to revolutionize the way you enjoy food and essentials at home? Introducing DashPass from DoorDash, your ultimate ticket to convenience and savings. With DashPass, you gain exclusive access to unlimited $0 delivery fees on eligible orders, along with members-only deals and discounts that will leave your wallet smiling. Whether you're craving the flavors of your favorite restaurants, need groceries from across town, or anything in between, DashPass ensures that everything you need is just a few clicks away, delivered right to your door. With DashPass, not only do you enjoy $0 delivery fees, but you'll also benefit from lower service fees on eligible orders, making it the most affordable way to satisfy your cravings and stock up on essentials from your local favorites. What I really love is how quickly DashPass pays for itself. On average, it takes just two orders, which makes it a no-brainer investment for your budget. And as if that weren't enough, DashPass grants you special access to exclusive promotions and menu items, adding an extra layer of excitement to your DoorDash experience. You get all this for only $9.99 a month, which is a small price to pay for unlimited convenience and savings. My family and I have had DoorDash for the past year or so, and while I make most meals at home, I don't know that I could mom without it. I used it twice just this past week while we were dealing with a stomach bug at home, and it was so nice to have and to be able to focus on getting better and not running all over town to pick everything up for everyone. Don't wait. Sign up for DashPass now and unlock a world of possibilities, all from the comfort of your home. DashPass from DoorDash, delivering joy, convenience, and savings straight to your doorstep. Get more from delivery for less with DashPass. $0 delivery fees and reduced service fees on eligible DoorDash orders. Sign up for DashPass today and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change. Terms apply. Open the door to $0 delivery fees and savings you can't get anywhere else. Sign up for DashPass today, only on DoorDash, and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change, terms apply. Hey guys, and welcome to the Moms and Murder Podcast, a true crime podcast featuring myself, Mandy, and my dear friend, Melissa. Hi, Melissa. Hi, Mandy. How are you? I am doing pretty dang good, I think. I don't have any complaints. I think I'm doing good. Sometimes I hesitate to say I'm doing good because I'm like, wait, am I doing good? But I think Isn't so. it? <laughs> Do you ever go to bed and you have these thoughts on your mind and you're just a- an absolute mess and you wake up the next morning and you literally don't know what you were freaking out about? I right. mean, new things come up, but I can go to bed sometimes and I'm like, this tomorrow's going to be the worst day of my entire right. life. And I wake up and I'm like, what was I freaking out about? That's yeah. so weird. Yeah. there's There really is nothing like a good night's sleep to just kind of reset Absolutely. In your brain. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I get it. My kids started school this week. Yours are starting school next week. So we're both kind of getting in the groove, figuring all of this out. And it's a good and exciting time. And everybody's kids are doing pretty good. So, like, yeah. knock on everything. Like, it's, it's amazing. It's starting good. I know. Yeah. We talked a little bit uh, before we started recording about our oldest kids who, as we've said before, they're um, new teenagers. Mine's not quite there. He'll be there in a couple months. But he told me that he was excited to start school this year. He thinks that this is going to be his year. And so I was like, wow, I know this is amazing. I'm happy to hear that. This is 
Perfect. I couldn't ask for a better um, a better attitude going into the new school right. year. So, yeah. So I'm I'm happy. I'm happy that you're happy. And yes, everything sounds right? good. <laughs> Come what may. Next week it could be a whole different story, but right now everything looks good. And I wanted to say thank you. So many people sent in some mosquito repellent ideas. I saw that. Yeah. So I was going to make like a little list and put it on Instagram or whatever. If I have not tried any of these things out, but if people are like me um, and your youngest son and looking for something, um, then maybe they have have some options they can check out. So thank you everyone for sending those in. I'm I'm, I'm going to try them try all. Some. Yeah, right. I know that's the thing. I'm going to end up covered from head to toe in all of them, and totally fine with it. Definitely, definitely. All right, so to get us into the episode for this week, I wanted to talk about this poll that I saw on social media recently because I thought it was kind of interesting. And this poll asked, women lead with looks, men lead with money, true or false? And the most common answer to this poll by far was that this was a true statement. So it seems like this is a pretty commonly shared idea that people have. Personally, I think that men can lead with their looks as well. But I feel like sometimes if people feel that they are lacking in looks, they might try and lead with something else. Sometimes it can be money, but I feel like sometimes it could be any other thing. Have you heard of The Real Housewives? That's like the whole (laughs) shtick. Exactly. Yeah. Um, But of course, like we said, we definitely know and have heard about people, men especially, that are good looking and they know they're good looking and they do put that forward first. And let's be honest, money is a way that some people attract a partner and That's not to say that everybody who has money or, you know, that's rich is using their fortune to manipulate people into dating them. But also being honest, this really is the exact premise of many movies and reality TV shows. And this reminded me of a show that I watched years and years ago. I feel like this had to have been at least 14 years ago, maybe not quite that long, but it's been a while. No, Um, no, I bet it was. It it was like early 2000s for sure. Yeah. For sure. So the name of the show was called Beauty and the Geek. And the men that were on the show were all these geeks. And they were geeks in the stereotypical sense, meaning they weren't really conventionally attractive. They didn't have any game. And they took an interest in nerdy things. The women contestants, on the other hand, were the beauties. And the idea, if I'm remembering the show correctly, was that beauties and geeks wouldn't normally have this opportunity to really get to know each other because they're on two different societal leagues, so to speak. But on the show, they would get the chance to date each other and learn from each other and potentially form a real relationship with somebody that they least expected. There wasn't necessarily a component of wealth when it came to the male contestants, although many of them were very intelligent and they did have high paying jobs as a result of that. But the show is just one example of this whole idea that if you aren't gifted naturally with amazing looks, you better have something else significant to offer. Melissa, I don't you we kind of talked a little bit. I don't know if you watched Beauty and the Geek. Maybe you said you might have and just don't remember. It might not have stuck oh, out to you. I but. absolutely did. I said in the notes on our share Google document, I put, I may have watched Shaking My Head. Of course I watched oh. this show. <laughs> <laughs> well, when I Googled it, I actually saw that they still run it in Australia or they did like I guess they continued doing it after they ended it in the U.S., but I think it only ran for like maybe two or three seasons here, and it just was kind of a flop. But I thought it was an interesting premise for a TV show, although I guess it was kind of walking that fine line. I don't know. There was was no line. The line was gone. (laughs) It was way over. Um, It also kind of reminds me, I mean, Beauty and the Geek is a little different, but even Joe Millionaire, which was a show that came out early 2000s as well, has the slurp heard around the world. I'm not going into it, but anyone that has heard it knows exactly what I'm saying. Um, But they had the idea that this guy was a millionaire and all the women thought he was a millionaire, but he actually was like 
he worked in construction or something. So are they really in love at the end? Did you really love him or did you love the idea that he had money? Same kind of idea. So yeah, you're right. There's tons of shows like this and I will watch each and every Every one one of of them. (laughs) (laughs) So this man named Mark Yagala was somebody who understood this concept more than most. For his whole life, Mark struggled with accepting himself for what he was, and he resented the fact that he was not attractive by society's standards and that women were never interested in him. Mark was born in the late 1970s in Pennsylvania, where he was raised on a tree nursery farm. Growing up, Mark was exactly what you'd picture of the stereotypical nerdy kid. He wore high-waisted pants, oversized glasses. He was super smart at things like math and science, and he was also very short, standing just over five feet tall when he was fully grown. It bothered Mark a lot that he didn't attract attention of girls, and his overall aesthetic really weighed heavily on him. When he was 13, he started going to the library a lot. He really loved to read and to learn. At some point, he watched the movie Wall Street with Michael Douglas, and that led Mark to start reading the Wall Street Journal, where he learned all about stocks and much more. At the age of 13, I can't imagine my son picking up the Wall Street Journal and actually being interested in it. Unless it's like a hidden Roblox code in there. My kid's never doing that. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Even at this young age, Mark was so into the Wall Street Journal and spent so much time reading it that he developed this fantasy fairy tale idea that if he had money, he would become successful and that if he was successful, he would get the girl. And getting the girl was Mark's ultimate goal in life. Mark said he wanted to be Gordon Gecko, who was the famous man that the movie Wall Street was based on. At age 16, Mark began dabbling in stock trading with some money that his cousin lent him. As far as academics went, Mark was basically a genius. He was an incredibly high achiever and won several academic awards, such as highest average in, you can insert pretty much any class here, (laughs) uh, because he was at the top of almost all of them. He was also first place for the U.S. Navy Certificate of Achievement for Academic Excellence and the Bosch and Lom Honorary Science Award and Scholarship. Although Mark was number one at all of his school subjects, he was still less than zero when it came to girls. He never went on any dates or had any girlfriends at all during high school, which was something that upset him a lot as he started thinking about going into college. By the time he graduated high school, though, Mark had made $100,000 in the stock market, and he figured out pretty quickly that he loved making money. He said that it was absolutely intoxicating to him, and he was living the dream and loving his life, which, yeah, coming out of high school with $100,000 in savings. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I can't even imagine what that would be like. That's that's amazing. Right. In 1994, Mark graduated and began attending the University of Pennsylvania's business school. When he was 18, Mark finally had his first encounter with a woman. Mark and his cousins went to a strip club where he ended up hiring a sex worker, and he had sex with her that night. After losing his virginity, Mark became addicted to hiring sex workers, which we will get into more shortly. Mark eventually dropped out of school and founded a hedge fund called Ashbury Capital. And if you're not sure what a hedge fund is exactly, we've got your back. Investor.org says hedge funds pool money from investors and invest it in securities or other type of investments with the goal of getting positive returns. I love when I learn things on this show because (laughs) I've heard the term a million times, but had no idea what it meant. And just for everyone listening, whenever we do these little side things and give you a definition of what something is, it's not because we're talking down to you. It's most commonly because I had no idea exactly what it was and I had to go look it up. So I'm including it in here. (laughs) Oh, it's fully because we don't know what exactly. (laughs) what we're saying. So we are learning as well. 
So these hedge funds are not as heavily regulated as mutual funds, and they have more leeway than a mutual fund when it comes to pursuing investments in strategies that may increase the risk of investment losses. Hedge funds are really limited to wealthier investors who are able to afford the higher fees and the higher risks that are associated with this type of investing. Hedge funds are also for institutional investors, including pension funds. By the late 90s, Mark had already earned himself a reputation for being a bit of a whiz kid when it came to investing. So it really wasn't hard for him to get people to trust him with their money. He tried to raise $1 billion from investors to start off his trading account, but he was only able to get around $896,000. But he eventually did build up having way more money, and he began living this incredibly lavish lifestyle. He used his money to fly private jets between the East Coast and Las Vegas, where he built a reputation for being a high-rolling gambler. He loved to play at Mandalay Bay and the Aladdin. One time, he lost a million dollars in one week. I, that, that hurts me. <laughs> it does not compute. I don't, <laughs> I don't even understand those words. So Mark also bought himself a $1.2 million home in Delaware, which was in addition to the other two homes he already owned. Other luxury things that Mark bought for himself were a $200,000 luxury box at FedEx Stadium, a whole fleet of luxury cars, a helicopter, a limo company, oil wells, nursing homes, and he even bought an interest in a horse. I love how they go from being like, well, that's kind of weird to just like downright odd by the end. I feel like it's like my kids, right? When I give them money and they don't really have anything in mind that they want, but they just know that they want to spend it. And like, you that's have what, to like, spend it. This is what I'm getting the vibe of that, you know, and hearing that he has all these different, these interests and these different things. And it's like, does he really care about any of that stuff? Like right? those things are all over the place. This is like the kid from Blank Check. He right. just went absolutely <laughs> nuts. <laughs> But one of Mark's biggest ongoing expenses was his frequent visits with sex workers. Mark would sometimes hire as many as three to four different women in a day. He later said that he felt like he was completely out of control, and really he was just trying to fill this void of loneliness he felt, but he really didn't care about anything other than doing whatever he had to do to have sex. He would spoil these sex workers with expensive gifts, cars, furs, jewelry, allowances, and even houses. And Mark could afford all of this because by the end of the 90s, he was a multimillionaire. His office was on Park Avenue in New York. He owned a private helicopter, and he was now getting the girl, so to speak. He was dating very beautiful women. And keep in mind at this point, he's like not far out of high school. He's still in his early 20s, and he's accomplished all this, you know, he has all of these things, this nice office, this crazy career where he's making like millions of dollars at the age of 22 or 23 at this time. Like, your brain is not even fully developed at this point. Like, this is way too much money at this age. So in 1999, Mark was dating Tashara Casino, a Playboy playmate who won Miss May that same year. During this time period, though, Mark is at the height of his sex addiction. He was sleeping with every woman he could, including other playmates, adult film stars, models. He also said that it was exhilarating for him to be able to sleep with the most attractive women in the world and that it was like a drug to him. In August of 1999, Mark and his girlfriend Tashara were in Vegas when she introduced Mark to her friend and fellow playmate Sandy Bentley. Sandy actually became quite well known in the Playboy world because she had a twin sister named Mandy. The twins met Hugh Hefner at a fancy Hollywood club called the Garden of Eden. And this is a very popular spot for celebrities and just people who have a lot of money and they're very big names in L.A., One thing led to another, and somehow both of the twins began dating Hugh and moved into the Playboy Mansion in 1999. 
The twins had their own bedrooms while Hugh shared his room with his other girlfriend. And this just made me cringe because the other girlfriend's name was Brandy. (laughs) So yeah, (laughs) at this time, Hugh Hefner's three girlfriends were named Sandy, Mandy, and Brandy. Brandy later became Playmate of the Month for April 2000, and she won Playmate of the Year in 2001. The twins were expected to sleep with Hugh, but they later described what life in the mansion was like in an interview with the LA Times. They said Hefner treated his ladies like pampered pets. Butlers were always on hand to serve them. Limo drivers were standing by to take them anywhere they wanted to go. Almost every night was a party. They had cocktails, dinner out, a movie, dancing, something always going on, and clothing was always optional. But Hugh wanted his girls to always be camera ready in full hair and makeup at all times. The mansion was always full of girls and there was sex happening all over the place. Sandy said, quote, we didn't want for anything. And Mandy said, you can pretty much do anything if you're a woman. Despite being introduced to Sandy by his girlfriend, Tashara, Mark began dating Sandy soon after they met. In fact, the day after meeting Sandy, Mark actually bought her a $95,000 Mercedes 500 SL. Just a drop in the bucket compared to what he would eventually go on to spend on Sandy, but that's crazy that he bought the her a car day the after? day after. Yeah. That also seems like a lot of work. It's not easy to just go buy a car. Right. Like, like you didn't have anything else you wanted to do that day. That's, <laughs> I know. Like, <laughs> I have to like mentally prepare and like write it on my calendar if I'm going to go spend a whole day at a car dealership. So although Sandy was happy to accept this very nice car, she was dating Hugh Hefner at this time. And dating men outside of that was very frowned upon. But Sandy, Mandy, and Brandy all had secret boyfriends outside of the mansion. I'm just, I'm only laughing at the the hysterical oh, the name of the names. It's, like, it's, it's just so too much. insane. Yeah. I know. So, but Hef was really possessive and he felt like if you were his girl, then you were his girl. So, according to other playmates, the fact that Sandy and Mandy were dating other men and they were kind of, you know, they weren't even really trying to hide it, it really caused a lot of heartache and stress around the mansion. When Sandy and Mark first met, she told him all about how there were many famous guys vying for her attention, including Michael Bolton and Kevin Costner. So Mark knew right away that he was up against some pretty big competition. And if he had any chance with Sandy, he was going to have to really impress her with gifts. So that's what he did. For Mark, Sandy was just another trophy. He just wanted the clout from stealing one of Hugh Hefner's girlfriends because he viewed Hugh as the ultimate sexual icon. So in his eyes, stealing a woman from him was like the ultimate win. On his quest to be the best and win Sandy's affection, Mark spent around $6 million in total. After buying her the car, he gave her a $20,000 monthly allowance and a $1.6 million mansion in Las Vegas. It was an Italian villa-style mansion with views of the golf course in the backyard. It had five bedrooms and six bathrooms, a state-of-the-art media room, rooms for servants, a pool, four fireplaces, and a four-car garage. One of the bathrooms had a big Roman-style jacuzzi tub surrounded by marble floors and pillars, so this was just a very extravagant home. Mark spent another million dollars on redecorating and remodeling, and he even had the mansion furnished with custom-made furniture and many pieces of art and other expensive decor. Listen, I don't know about you, Melissa, but no man has ever gone this far to win my love. I mean, I think we've, like, shared pizza. That's about as far as this, you know, my (laughs) – but you can buy me with pizza, so that works. Exactly. And there's a whole lot more to get into with this story, and we're going to get into it right after a quick break to hear a word from this week's sponsors. 
Nighttime is the right time to play Best Fiends. Really, any time is the right time, but I find myself winding down at night, listening to a podcast or watching something on TV, all while playing a few rounds of my favorite mobile puzzle game, Best Fiends. What's really great about Best Fiends is not only can you play at your own pace, but you don't even need internet to play, thanks to offline play. Not only is Best Fiends a free-to-download mobile puzzle game, but there are literally thousands of exciting levels for new adventures and challenges each and every time you play. That's right. She said thousands, and I can vouch for that because I'm on level 3,213. So yes, thousands is correct. And I'm never bored with Best Fiends because there are always brand new events and challenges that pop up throughout the year, so I've always got a chance to earn some exclusive in-game items or new characters and rewards. Also, you can friend me on Best Fiends with code 2542573, and I'll make sure to send you some gifts, and you can always return the favor. Download your new favorite getaway, Best Fiends, for free today on the App Store or Google Play. You'll even get $5 worth of in-game rewards when you reach level 5. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. Our kids are headed back to school, and part of getting ready in my house includes making sure we have new EpiPens for my son to carry to school. On top of that, I have to sit down with the school nurse and his teachers and go over our emergency plan. And if I thought I had anxiety before, having a kid with food allergies only compounds it. But for new babies, food allergies can actually be a thing of the past, thanks to Ready Set Food. One in 12 babies develop food allergies each year, but it doesn't have to be that way, thanks to Ready Set Food. Now, thanks to evidence-based research, USDA guidelines, pediatricians and allergists all agree that feeding babies small amounts of these common food allergens like peanuts and eggs consistently for six months or more, starting at four months of age, can actually prevent severe allergies from developing by up to 80%. And Ready Set Food makes it easy to do this. And the statistics are really incredible, but how do you actually do this? Ready Set Food has you new parents covered. Ready Set Food was developed by an allergist and mom of two to make a way to introduce these foods to babies in a safe and easy way, starting with low doses of the most common food allergens like peanut, egg, and milk, starting right from the bottle. The result is giving parents a gently guided system of products that helps take out the mess and stress of introducing new allergens. Parenting is already hard enough, but Ready Set Food makes allergy introduction easy. Head over to readysetfood.com slash momsandmurder and use code momsandmurder for 30% off your first order of Ready Set Food and give your child the best chance to avoid developing a severe food allergy. Now back to the episode. So before the break, we are talking about Mark, his incredible allowance and gifts that he is buying Sandy and kind of figuring out who this Mark guy is in this story. So as time goes on, Sandy's allowance increases to $100,000 a month, and Mark eventually gave her a total of five luxury cars, furs, and more. Keep in mind, she's dating Hugh Hefner, living at the mansion, and she still has a mansion, her own mansion, and these five cars. It just kind of blows my mind. So he's also buying her expensive jewelry like Rolex watches and other pieces of jewelry that sometimes cost $500,000 a piece. He was also giving her an expensive ruby necklace, similar to the style of necklace that Richard Gere gives Julia Roberts in Pretty Woman, which was Sandy's favorite movie. Mark also gave her matching earrings and a bracelet. Mark said that Sandy loved jewelry, and whenever Sandy said she wanted something, he couldn't help but give it to her because material things made her very happy, and all he wanted to do was make her happy. Mark gave Sandy numerous gifts and cash and took care of her twin sister Mandy, too. He gave Mandy $55,000 for a house payment, and he gave their other sister, Cecilia, $328,000 to pay off her home. 
Merck also bought Sandy's mom a BMW and took Sandy and her friends on all-expense-paid vacations all over the world. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So (laughs) CBS later obtained and released a copy of just one of Merck's monthly American Express bills that showed he had almost $708,000 outstanding. Purchases on this card included $500,000 on private jets, $25,000 on one trip to FAO Schwartz. Hold on. Isn't that a toy store? (laughs) It is. It is definitely a toy store. And I don't want to ask any more questions about what was happening in that situation. (laughs) Let's move right along. $60,000 at the New York Four Seasons and $8,000 at a Hawaiian hotel, although Sandy actually didn't go on this particular trip. Sandy was more of a shopper, so... Her spending was spread out over several purchases, but she was pretty free with spending herself. In one day, she spent $1,000 at Chanel and Beverly Hills and then bought $6,000 worth of men's clothing at Versace in Vegas. This idea of shopping and then jet setting and shopping some more, like, I do not understand that life. The way I love online now, like, there's just no reason for me to leave to go to the store. This this is not nice to me. I don't like this. <laughs> I don't like this one bit. But who is she buying $6,000 worth of men's clothing for? I'm hoping it's Mark at this point. Hopefully, yeah. I mean, I feel like there's a chance it wasn't, <laughs> honestly, with how this is going. So another day, she spends $9,000 at a trendy L.A. boutique and then flew to New York and spent $6,000 at another boutique. Sandy also spent a lot of money at fancy restaurants and at the Garden of Eden Club. But Mark really didn't care. He was more than happy to let Sandy spend his money because he was super proud of the relationship he had with her. He actually bragged about Sandy to his investor, Mary Fusco, really quite often. Mary was an 88-year-old widow from New York, and Mark would tell her and her daughters how in love with Sandy he was and how he planned to marry her one day. He also would show off the expensive gifts he bought for Sandy before he gave them to her. Mary was incredibly concerned that Mark was just wasting his money on Sandy, but what Mary didn't know was that Mark wasn't just spending his own money. He was actually spending Mary's money and the money from 109 other investors. Yikes. Yeah. In May of 2000, Sandy and her twin Mandy posed for the cover of Playboy, but shortly after that, Hugh Hefner found out that Sandy was dating Mark, and he was not okay with it. He ended up kicking the twins out of the mansion, but Sandy really didn't care because at this point, she's already been on the cover of the magazine, which was really her whole goal with Playboy anyway. She said she was sick of having to be all done up all the time and really just sick of life in the public eye. So after the twins left the mansion, they started a website called BentleyTwins.com, where they promoted their new calendar, and they also began acting. The two actually appeared in an episode of Sex in the City in September of 2000. Although Mark was very skilled when it came to investing money, he was not very skilled at fraud. And by the summer of 2000, the jig was up. Reports of illicit losses at Mark's hedge fund spurred a federal investigation into claims that Mark was using investors' money for his own personal use. These claims turned out to be 100% true. Mark was taking the money from the investors and using it on himself and Sandy. He was running nothing more than a Ponzi scheme, which is defined by Cornell Law School as a type of investment fraud in which investors are promised artificially high rates of return with little to no risk. So the original investors in the scheme and the perpetrators of the fraud are paid off by funds from later investors, but there's little or no actual business activity that produces any revenue to speak of. 
A Ponzi scheme generates funds from previous investors as long as there is a consistent flow of funds from the new investors, which gives the impression that the earlier investments have drastically increased in value in a short period of time. So as we all know, we've all kind of gotten more familiar with these types of schemes, um, I feel like in recent in the recent like decades even. Um, but these schemes ultimately collapse when too many investors start demanding you know, returns and redemption or when the scheme is no longer attracting enough new investments. At first, Mark started with a legitimate hedge fund that was earning 50% for his investors. But as the stock market dropped, so did the hedge fund's value. And by June of 2000, it was actually losing money. Mark's response to this was to stop investing the investor's money for the fund, and instead he began using the hedge fund as a personal bank account for himself. He was living in the lap of luxury thanks to other people's life savings. Oof. Yeah. So while the crap was really hitting the fan for the hedge fund, Mark was lying to the investors and telling them that he was making them a lot of money, even claiming that he was averaging 80% returns with their money, which oh immediately gosh. would signal red flags to me because I would be like, how exactly are you doing that? That sounds like a lot. And I don't have that kind of luck. So the second exactly. you tell me I'm even yeah. gaining money, I'd be like, this guy's a fraud. <laughs> right. So, but in order to fool them, he made fake account statements and sent them to the investors to make it seem like these were actual returns. He managed to convince 110 investors, many of which were elderly women, to hand over their entire life savings and fortunes so that he could invest it for them. One such victim of this scam was the investor we mentioned a little bit ago, Mary Fusco. She was an 88-year-old widow from Albany, New York, with a life savings of $1.5 million. But due to medical bills and other expenses, it was dwindling quickly. Mary was actually financially supporting her daughter, who suffered from the Epstein-Barr virus and had a very weak immune system. So Mary was desperate to make the most of the money she had. So when a friend told her about Mark, the Delaware financial whiz kid, Mary was excited to have him help invest her money. Mary's friend had invested several hundred thousand dollars with Mark and encouraged Mary to do the same. According to Mary's daughter, Claire, Mark showed up at their house, talked with Mary, shared a meal with her, and reassured her that her life savings was safe with him and that everything was going to be okay. But things were not okay. Mary lost everything and had to turn to selling her jewelry, vintage clothing, and even the home that she and her late husband shared for 40 years. She ended up moving into a townhome. Her daughter Claire said nothing could replace what her mom lost and that this was an incredibly depressing time. By September 2000, things were going very badly for the hedge fund. The account had a negative balance of $271,000, and Mark owed a brokerage firm over $7 million. That's one of those things where if I went to sleep at night and was like, oh my gosh, I can't imagine, you know, I'm going to be so stressed about this tomorrow, like we were talking at the beginning of the episode, <laughs> you definitely I would wake up be, still stressed. Be, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so he writes a check for it, which bounced, which... I mean, good try. Imagine writing a check for $7 million at all, though. That seems like absolutely ludicrous to, like, try to write that out on a check. I know. And, like, what do you think? Is there a money fairy that's coming that night? Like, you know this is a hot right. check, buddy. <laughs> so it bounces, and the firm is coming around looking for their money. Mark flies off to Vegas, and he tries to sell off a bunch of his property, including cars, the helicopter, the limo company, the nursing homes, but he's <laughs> unable to sell them. I can't imagine nursing homes aren't more of a hot commodity. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so he tells a friend he's made some mistakes and that the expenses he was facing were way out of hand and he really just wants to try and salvage what he could at this point. 
Some of the mistakes he made included not having enough investors to begin with, making legitimate investments that simply didn't work, and the lavish lifestyle that he definitely couldn't afford. Other investors that were being screwed over included a Delaware dentist and his wife's hairdresser, a local home remodeler, a uniform dealer and his son, and Mark's own father. In the fall of 2000, Mark was in the hole for as much as $50 million. And in October, several of the investors were getting suspicious. Mark became desperate to raise a million dollars to pay off those investors and make it seem like he really did have their money. But of course, he wasn't able to pull that together. Finally, on October 17th, the FBI caught up with Mark, who was 23 years old at this time. This man has lived a life in these short years. Honestly. Really? So he was arrested on mail fraud charges, and the Securities and Exchange Commission also filed a civil fraud complaint against him, which led to the Ashbury Capital assets being frozen. It was learned that Mark stole over $50 million from 110 investors. And when Sandy, the love of Mark's life, found out that Mark had been arrested, she left him. She said that she had no idea about any fraudulent business dealings or how Mark funded all of the things he gave her. But in February of 2001, Sandy was ordered to turn over everything Mark had purchased for her. The mansion, the jewelry, the cars, the furs, all of it. A judge barred Sandy from selling any of the gifts herself and told her she must immediately leave her home. They actually changed the locks and took video evidence of all the gifts and materials inside of it for records. Sandy initially refused to give up any of her stuff and told authorities she would sue to keep any money they made from selling Mark's gifts to her. One of the victims of fraud at Mark's hand wondered how Sandy could, in good conscience, even want to keep these items knowing that they were bought with stolen money and that others were losing their life savings because of this whole scandal. I understand, but also I understand Sandy being like, wait a minute, like this is my, these are my gifts. This is my stuff. And so like, I can understand her being like, I didn't have anything to do with this. I mean, I get where the victims are coming from. They're like, hey, like that was never rightfully yours. And as a decent person, you should also be like, yes, you're right. I don't have any right to these things because of that. But I can understand how it would be hard to, like, go from having all these things. And I'm, I'm assuming Sandy was also very young, you know, had to have this lavish lifestyle. And then to have right. the police being like, you have to give us literally everything. You know, all these nice things that you have grown to love and this whole lifestyle and your house and your cars and everything. I can imagine why she was not too excited to give up all of that. Yeah, no, totally. Um, I This is very Erica Girardi from the season of Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. And her husband was it's like going through all of this where he has stolen money allegedly from victims of plane crashes and stuff and use their money it was a another kind of ponzi scheme and she's having to sell like give all that stuff up and she's kind of in that same situation where it was like i didn't know it was bought with this money like why should i be punished but at the end of the day there are people that are right. real victims in this like losing your ruby diamond sorry that's right. not a a real victim like these other people exactly So at this point, though, Sandy was already dating another man named Michael Tardio. And this relationship was different in that it was Sandy who was pining over Michael instead of it being the other way around. Sandy was used to men fawning all over her, but this time she was the one who was truly in love. Michael was a part-time model and doorman at the Garden of Eden Club, which is where he met Sandy. And as we said before, this was a very popular night you know, night spot in LA, and she frequented that club and spent a lot of money in there. Michael was from a successful and wealthy family. He was clean cut and well liked, but he kind of lived his life in the fast lane. He was a father of two who had moved from New York to LA in 1998. 
When Sandy found out that a judge ruled she had to hand over all of her belongings, she turned to Michael to vent. She told him how everything was about to be taken from her and she was going to even be homeless. Michael suggested that Sandy should secretly keep a few pieces of jewelry or something so that she could sell them at a later date for some quick cash. And that's what Sandy agreed to do. She and Michael broke into the mansion, the one where she used to live and the one that Mark bought for her, and stole nearly $1 million in jewelry and furs. But there was actually a private investigator at the mansion while they were inside, and he was filming the whole robbery. So the investigators know exactly what happened and what was taken. I love that part of the story so much, that not only did they break in after knowing that the police have been all over, taking right. pictures, video, everything, a literal PI is in there and is like, wow, my job right. just got right. so easy. <laughs> like, did not expect this to happen today. Yeah. No. <laughs> so later on, when Sandy was confronted about the missing items, she claimed that the jewelry was either lost or had been stolen by somebody else. On Valentine's Day 2002... Mark was finally sentenced to five years and five months in Florida federal prison. The sentence was one year longer than the guidelines recommended. He was also ordered to pay $32.1 million in restitution to the investors that he ripped off. Mark, to his credit, never denied what he did. He told the judge, quote, My former clients put their faith and trust in me, and I totally violated that trust, end quote. He readily admitted to spending their money on himself and on Sandy, and he did seem like he was regretful. After the dust had settled a bit and Mark was behind bars, Sandy and Michael decided to try and find a buyer for the jewelry that they kept slash stole, but actually stole. Michael started by telling people at the Garden of Eden Club that they would sell all of the items for a million dollars, but he wasn't able to find any buyers there. Next, Michael went to an international weapons broker named Linda Kim. He goes to this hotel that she owned in L.A., claiming to have this deal of a lifetime, and he gave her really the same offer. He offered all the jewelry for $1 million, which really surprised Linda. She said it was very special jewelry of very high quality, and the deal seemed fishy and just too good to be true. So she declined to go forward with it. Linda sounds like a smart woman. Right? Very smart. So towards the end of the summer in 2002, Michael met another man at the club who claimed to know someone interested in buying the stolen goods. The guy was known only as Mr. Big. Michael agreed to meet Mr. Big on September 1st. So in preparation for this meeting, Michael rents this Mercedes SUV, and then he tries to find a cash counting machine that could help him count $1 million quickly, <laughs> which is, <laughs> I mean, honestly, if I'm involved in this, I this is the kind of idea I would have. I mean, like, it sounds genius, right? Facts, right? <laughs> How else would you know? Michael asked a Hollywood stuntman to tag along and kind of serve as the muscle for this meeting. Why wouldn't you just ask somebody who was like actual muscle, not a stuntman? <laughs> because this is Hollywood, baby. This is what <laughs> <laughs> you do. <laughs> so this stuntman really gets bad vibes from the whole idea, and he says no. So then Michael asked his best friend, Chris Monson, to go with him. Chris also had some bad feelings about the plan, but he was really a good friend, and he agreed to go with Michael. Chris and Michael were motorcycle racing buddies, and Chris had come from a successful family, and he was successful himself. Chris graduated with a bachelor's degree in political science and communications and moved to L.A., where he started a self-storage business with his father. Chris also aspired to be an actor, and he loved racing cars and motorcycles. So on the night of September 1st, Michael took the night off from the club. 
hours before he was supposed to go meet Mr. Big to make this deal, he again contacted Linda Kim and asked her to buy this jewelry, but Linda still said no. She said the jewelry had bad energy. So at about 9.30 p.m., the plan to meet Mr. Big commenced. Michael picked up Chris, and they drove to a restaurant on Sunset Boulevard, where it was believed they were supposed to meet this mysterious Mr. Big. After this meeting, Michael, Chris, and Mr. Big went into the Hollywood Hills. At 11.30 p.m., Sandy calls Michael, and he said that they were driving through the Mount Olympus area. Less than two hours later, Michael and Chris were both found dead. It was 1.30 a.m. on September 2nd when another motorist came upon a Mercedes SUV that was on fire. Once the fire was extinguished, authorities found the bodies of 35-year-old Michael and 31-year-old Chris, both dead from several gunshot wounds to the chest. And we still have more to get into the story after one last break to hear a word from this week's sponsors. We talk a lot about the heat, and really it's for good reason. It is still hot as sin down here in Florida, which can also mean hot sleepless nights. But thanks to Miracle Brand's self-cooling bed sheets, you can enjoy better quality sleep right away. Miracle Brand's secret is that they're inspired by silver-infused fabrics that were actually created by NASA. Miracle Brand sheets are temperature-regulating so you can get the perfect night's sleep in the dead of summer or cool of winter. Here's a fact that's way less fun and way more ick. Did you guys know that traditional bed sheets actually harbor more bacteria than a toilet seat? So gross. And of course, this bacteria can lead to acne, allergies, and stuffy nose, and just overall being icky. But Miracle Brand offers a whole line of self-cleaning and eco-friendly bedding, like sheets, pillowcases, and even comforters that prevent 99% of bacteria and require three times less laundry. My favorite part of these sheets, though, is that they're thermoregulating. I'm not ripping them off in the middle of the night, and there's no need to flip my pillow over to the cooler side, because guess what? Either side I have it on is just the cool side. Go to trymiracle.com slash moms to try it today. And we've got a special deal for our listeners. Be sure to use our promo code moms at checkout to save 40% and get three free towels. And Miracle is so confident in their product, it's backed with a 30-day money-back guarantee. So if you aren't 100% satisfied, you'll get a full refund. Upgrade your sleep with Miracle Brand. Go to trymiracle.com slash moms and use the code moms to claim your free three-piece towel set and save 40% off. Again, that's trymiracle.com slash moms. Thank you, Miracle Brand, for sponsoring this episode. With no fees or minimums, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions, even easier than deciding to listen to another episode of your favorite podcast. And with no overdraft fees, is it even a decision? That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank. Capital One N.A. Member FDIC. Are you ready to revolutionize the way you enjoy food and essentials at home? Introducing DashPass from DoorDash, your ultimate ticket to convenience and savings. With DashPass, you gain exclusive access to unlimited $0 delivery fees on eligible orders, along with members-only deals and discounts that will leave your wallet smiling. Whether you're craving the flavors of your favorite restaurants, need groceries from across town, or anything in between, DashPass ensures that everything you need is just a few clicks away, delivered right to your door. With DashPass, not only do you enjoy $0 delivery, 
delivery fees, but you'll also benefit from lower service fees on eligible orders, making it the most affordable way to satisfy your cravings and stock up on essentials from your local favorites. What I really love is how quickly DashPass pays for itself. On average, it takes just two orders, which makes it a no-brainer investment for your budget. And as if that weren't enough, DashPass grants you special access to exclusive promotions and menu items, adding an extra layer of excitement to your DoorDash experience. You get all this for only $9.99 a month, which is a small price to pay for unlimited convenience and savings. My family and I have had DoorDash for the past year or so, and while I make most meals at home, I don't know that I could mom without it. I used it twice just this past week while we were dealing with a stomach bug at home, and it was so nice to have and to be able to focus on getting better and not running all over town to pick everything up for everyone. Don't wait. Sign up for DashPass now and unlock a world of possibilities, all from the comfort of your home. DashPass from DoorDash, delivering joy, convenience, and savings straight to your doorstep. Get more from delivery for less with DashPass. $0 delivery fees and reduced service fees on eligible DoorDash orders. Sign up for DashPass today and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change. Terms apply. Open the door to $0 delivery fees and savings you can't get anywhere else. Sign up for DashPass today, only on DoorDash, and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change, terms apply. And now back to the episode. So before the break, we have gotten into a lot of the story about Mark Yagala and Sandy Bentley, how Mark had been stealing money from people that were investing in his hedge fund company and using it on himself and his girlfriend, Sandy, who was a, I guess, now former Playboy playmate with a twin sister named Mandy. There's a lot of names going on. Mm -hmm. Um, So Mark has now kind of been busted for running this entire scheme and this fraud. And now Sandy has moved on. She's dating a new man named Michael. Michael has agreed to help Sandy, who has been ordered to hand over all these belongings that Mark has given her. And together they made this plan to keep some of the jewelry that she was supposed to turn over and to sell it for cash. So Michael and his best friend Chris have gone on this mission to meet a buyer for this jewelry, and both of the men were found shot to death. So the people that lived in the area were interviewed, but nobody saw anything or even heard any gunshots that night. But the officers actually theorized that the men had been shot somewhere else, and then the SUV was brought there and set on fire. And this was because the area where the car was found was an upscale neighborhood, and the police said that it really wasn't the type of place that you would find two people murdered in the street. The investigators went to the Garden of Eden Club, where Michael worked, to see if they could find out more about him. And that's when some of his coworkers mentioned that Michael was trying to sell this expensive jewelry. They realized then that the jewelry was missing from the SUV, which led to the obvious theory that the men were robbed and then shot, and then the SUV was lit on fire to destroy evidence, which did work to some degree because there were no identifiable fingerprints or any usable evidence. When the news about the murders broke, many people were totally shocked. Neither Michael nor Chris had any criminal background, and those who knew those two men thought it was absolutely wild that they would be involved in something so shady. Michael's brother, Neil, said, quote, here's my brother who dies in a kind of very murky situation who, by and large, was a really good guy. He said he thought that his brother was just in over his head. Sandy was brought in for questioning the day after the murder, and she denied that Michael and Chris were even trying to sell the jewelry. She was not at all cooperative, and it was clear that she was only interested in protecting herself. 
Months went by, and the police finally warned Sandy that if she wasn't going to be honest with them, she had a pretty good chance at going to jail herself. So Sandy eventually agreed to cooperate, in exchange for not being prosecuted for stealing the jewelry and the furs from the mansion. She told investigators that she and Michael did plan to sell the jewelry and that Michael found a buyer at the Garden of Eden Club. He had even been talking to a guy there who knew of someone, Mr. Big, that was interested in the jewelry. So Michael set up a meeting over Labor Day weekend. Sandy said all she knew about Mr. Big was that he had a lot of money and drove fancy cars. In preparation for the deal, Sandy said that Michael rented the Mercedes SUV and tried to find a cash counting machine, which the investigators said really showed just how little street knowledge Michael actually had. Because, of course, we kind of chuckled about this earlier, but nobody's going to sit there and wait while you run a million dollars through a cash counter no. during like this very sketchy transaction. Everybody's trying to get out of there. So and this is the right. And like you said, like, how would you know if you got your million? This is the kind of situation where you are just trusting that you have your million. And in this type of world, if you don't have your million, like there's going to be consequences for that. Right, right, on. right. So you're just assuming that the people are giving you the correct amount of money. Totally that on it. Yeah. Honor system. And honor if not, system. my people will contact your people. <laughs> right. So um, Sandy also gave the investigators a phone number that Michael gave her just before he left to meet this Mr. Big. And he told her if anything happens to call that number. So the police looked up this number, and it turned out that it belonged to a guy named Michael Jacobs, a convicted felon. People that worked at the nightclub and patrons there said that Michael spoke to Michael Jacobs about selling the jewelry and that he was the one who put Michael in touch with Mr. Big. The investigators interviewed Michael Jacobs several times and fully believed that he was the middleman, but he refused to say anything or give the police anything to work with. Phone records showed that Michael and Michael Jacobs spoke on the phone multiple times during the day and into the night of the murders. And Jacobs' cell phone showed activity in the area where the men met up with Mr. Big. Later on, records showed that his phone was active in the area where the bodies were found in the burning car. But without his cooperation, the police don't have enough evidence to charge him with anything. So the investigation continued. Wow. How were they yeah. not able to... Something the records that, you know, his cell phone records just to look at who else he was. I mean, obviously, there's legalities there. But in in a perfect world, that's what you would, you know, hope would happen. So meanwhile, the government's still trying to recover this money that Mark stole from his investors. And in 2003, they auctioned off the property that they seized from him. They were able to bring in $1.3 million by selling the Vegas mansion and nine luxury cars. By the middle of December that year, homicide detectives working on the murders of Michael and Chris were really getting desperate for any new leads. So the LAPD decided to offer a $25,000 reward for information leading to the arrest and conviction of any suspects. They said at the time that Mark and Sandy were not suspects. Mark told CBS, quote, Every day, I feel like a fool. My greed and then, you know, her greed resulted in the murders of two innocent people, end quote. Investigators were pretty sure that the person who murdered the two men was the same person or people they were supposed to meet to sell the jewelry to. But after exploring other theories, they said it was possible that Michael was actually targeted by one of the hundreds of Garden of Eden patrons that Michael had turned away at the door. But they were pretty sure the motive was a robbery, although they did believe that Michael met the potential buyer through the nightclub. But still, even with the reward and with bits and pieces of the puzzle, Years went by and there was still no break in the case. 
In 2011, the Los Angeles City Council announced that the reward for information leading to the arrest of whoever killed Michael and Chris was now $75,000. The city councilman said, quote, however interesting it may be, however salacious the details may be, this is a tragic murder. Someplace there is a murderer who is still at large, end quote. He also said, quote, some people may think this is not as important as a murder that happened a month ago. But the truth is, for nine years, there's been a murderer on the loose. It's clear that there's someone who's committed a multiple murder that's still at large, and we can't accept that, end quote. Another detective said that they believe that the nucleus of this case was really around the Garden of Eden nightclub. At this point, investigators admitted that the jewelry was long gone. Most likely it had been broken down, melted, and then sold in bits and pieces. Detective Dennis English said the investigation was hampered by the witnesses who refused to say what they know. As of today, the murders are still unsolved. Wow. Mark was released from prison in April of 2010 after serving his time for the frauds. In September 2014, he wrote an article for an Australian news outlet entitled, How I Stole Hugh Hefner's Girlfriend. He wrote that after Hef kicked Sandy and Mandy out of the mansion, Mark saw Hef one last time at the Garden of Eden. He said that Hugh had new blondes with him, and he had the twins. Mark claimed that Hugh got upset when people at the club started saying things such as, like, Mark was the new Hugh Hefner. And he said, quote, Hef got upset and left the club. I think he was more afraid I'd take one of his new girlfriends. Which, I don't know if that's what he was afraid of. Calm down, Mark. Calm down. (laughs) So Mark also continued on, quote, Even though I stole Hef's girlfriend, I wish I didn't. I'd love to give her back. She cost me millions of dollars, my business, and my freedom. Hefner would impose a 9 p.m. curfew on his next set of girlfriends with the hopes of avoiding another Mark Yagalia. I am banned from the mansion, but that doesn't bother me. If I see a Playboy playmate on the same side of the street, I'll cross to the other side as quickly as I can. Hef, you can keep your playmates. End quote. In November 2012, Mark went back into the investing business and started working as a private investor, which I am honestly shocked <laughs> to hear that right? he would do such a thing. Uh, but he now works to make sure that people aren't getting scammed. And he warns people to always know the company that they're investing in, to do their research, and to look for signs of fraud, which, okay, I got to give him props for that. But he would know. <laughs> I don't personally know that I would feel comfortable. But Absolutely that's not. Saying. That's all I'm yeah. saying. Yeah. But so, maybe there are people that do maybe, and good yeah, for them. You know, yeah. Sure. And good for him. You know, if he's tr- if he truly has turned his life around and he wants right. to do better and, and wants to make it right, I feel like that's a good way of doing it. But I, I feel like he has to know that he's kind of climbing an uphill, you know, he's fighting an uphill battle Absolutely. with that because people are definitely not going to trust him as readily as they may have before, no matter how good he is at the job. So he does have three big rules for investing that he would like everyone to know. Number one, if an investment guy has a hot wife or girlfriend – run. I love it so much. (laughs) Honestly, right. He tells no lies, right? Number two, use common sense. And three, if it sounds too good to be true, it generally is. And the chances are it is not the greatest investment of your lifetime. I actually think those are solid rules for investing. Totally. Yeah. So in April 2013, Mark started a blog called Seeking Alpha, where he talks about his private investments. He later wrote a book called Wall Street Joyride, the true story of the prodigy, the playmates, and the missing $50 million. Today, Mark lives in Thailand, and he is still working as a private investor. He also still keeps up with the Seeking Alpha blog. He describes himself as a father, husband, investor, golfer, and foodie. 
Interestingly, and kind of funny, but Mark actually listed his company Ashbury Capital on his LinkedIn profile. He said, quote, portfolio manager of a $50 million hedge fund delivering returns of 32% in 1998 and 62% in 1999. I guess you don't list the bad things on LinkedIn. No. (laughs) (laughs) As for the twins, they went on to have lives of their own as well. In 2002, Mandy played a role in The Scorpion King, and in 2005, both twins were on an episode of Two and a Half Men. In 2006, Mandy was in The Girls Next Door, starring as Hef's ex-girlfriend. She also went on to be a model and later a photographer. By 2012, Sandy was married and a mom. So all's well that ends well, I guess. I don't know. This is such a bizarre case. And it is honestly mind-blowing that they have not solved the murder of Chris and Michael. It it really is because it seems like all the pieces are there. Like they said, if no one's going to talk, then they can't really do anything. But it feels like there aren't that many missing puzzle pieces that they can figure it out. But like they said, though, with the jewelry probably being broken down, like any chance of following it that way isn't going to work. That doesn't even matter. And then how are you going to tie it back to somebody if it's been if the jewelry has been, you know, had its changed its state and it's not even the same as it was how are you going to prove exactly you know so yeah definitely a really interesting um very interesting case and if you watch the girls next door mandy you watched the girls next door we've talked about of course this, right okay I, did. I mean like don't throw an of course out there at me <laughs> <laughs> but yeah that show i love that show but now i just saw where um where holly and bridget have a podcast coming out and it's called uh girls next level and it's going to be all about their time on Girls Next Door. And so they're going to recap each episode. It's already like on the charts and all they have is a trailer. But I'm excited to listen to that. I Bridget's, too. Bridget has never talked about her time. Like Holly's written a book and she has a podcast right. and all this other stuff. But we've never heard from Bridget. So I'm super interested to hear what she has to say. Definitely. All right. So on that note, we're going to turn the page and move on to last thing before we go, where we are going to continue this theme of Playboy and share some fun facts. Believe it or not, there are actually fun facts about Playboy that aren't inappropriate. (laughs) Very few. Very, very few. But there are a few. So Melissa, do you want to start us off? Sure. Um, Let's see. Mandy, do you know how long it took to make the rabbit as the infamous logo of uh, Playboy? I don't know how long it took. Okay, that's fine. I can tell you. Um, the Playboy art director, Paul Art Paul, drew the logo in less than half an hour. What? Like that iconic, it's everywhere, that little bunny took him 30 minutes and they went with it and the rest wow. is history. Yeah. Wow. Oh, and the other thing is they were told that readers of Playboy, if they wanted to like send a letter to Playboy, I guess, you would just draw the bunny on there. You don't have to put an address and the letter would get there. It's like it's like writing to the North Pole. (laughs) It really is. It's like Santa, but a little a little dirtier. Dirty Santa, I guess. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Okay, so here's an interesting fact. I don't know if a lot of people knew this because everyone just assumes that Hugh Hefner was just super loaded and obviously had lots of assets, but he actually did not own the Playboy Mansion. Crazy. Yeah. So it says Playboy Enterprises owned the estate, and in technical terms, Hugh Hefner's name was not on the deed to the mansion. He leased it from the company for only $100 per month. That man was really cheap. He really, really was. (laughs) Oh, boy, was he ever. That doesn't surprise me. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Mandy, do you know which of the Beatles destroyed a priceless painting (gasps) in the mansion? No. 
Okay, so John Lennon was going through his separation at one point with Yoko Ono. He was on this drunken bender. He is staying at Hefner's house or at at the Playboy Mansion. And he literally stubs his cigarette out on a Matisse painting on the wall. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And it still apparently hangs in the library uh, of Hefner's mansion. But the interesting thing about that is, like, of course that painting was worth a lot. But don't you think it's even worth more now that you can get the <laughs> Matisse painting that John Lennon's cigarette, like, right? burned? I think so. Right. I'd pay oh more gosh. for it. Yeah. That's hilarious. But it doesn't surprise me that they kept it around because my next fun fact is that Hugh Hefner actually was kind of gross. And he neglected the mansion. And it actually was – kind of icky. So, so it's, gross. Yeah. So it said that um, he, of course, never updated the Playboy Mansion. So it was very dated. And um, people who visited even as recent, you know, before Hef died, it was, they said that it was just stuck in the 1980s. And he never did really any work to it. Like he neglected all the gym equipment and like things kind of started smelling and a lot of the guests oh, even so started noticing. Animals. Yeah. Which I mean, it surprises me a little because you would think that with all the money he forked over for like all these different things that he would have somebody specifically just to keep the place like up to date and neat and tidy and clean right. and keep everything in working order so like things don't start wearing down. But apparently after he got the mansion, it kind of just started going downhill and he never did any maintenance or repairs or like had anybody Ugh. else do it. And he very rarely even left the mansion himself. So he just like, I guess, never really got to even see like the times changing and like the styles changing. So like, I guess when you imagine the Playboy Mansion and think it's so like awesome and great, apparently it wasn't that great because by the time it was like the 90s, it was like nasty and had not even been updated. I'm trying to remember if it was on Girls Next Door. It might be, or I, I think I saw something on the internet, probably TikTok, where they showed like a clip from Kendra's room on the Girls Next Door and like the baseboards and the door were disgusting. Like, like just gross, oh, grimy, I like so like you can't I don't remember that from watching the show, but it was just so gross. And you're like, oh, my God, like looking back at it now, it's like, oh, wow, that was icky. Mandy, my last fact is, do you know who Hugh Hefner is actually buried next to? No. So he actually never met this person, but she was the first Playboy playmate, and that is Marilyn Monroe. He bought the plot next to her um, after she died, and he was buried next to her. Oh, my gosh. That's funny. Well, I didn't um, – I wasn't going to use this fact. I had seen it, though, but I saw that he – even though she was in the magazine, he never got to meet her, which I just yeah. – I, I didn't dig deeper into finding out why that was, but that's interesting to me that he never got to meet Marilyn Monroe. Okay. I have um, two more Okay. And okay, so this one's just really interesting because I think some of the names that popped up on here were really interesting. So there have only been uh, 10 men that have been on the cover of Playboy. And I didn't look up all of them, but it looks like they're on the cover with a, with a girl. So I don't know. But the lucky men that were on the cover, some of these will probably surprise you. Uh, Peter Sellers, Burt Reynolds. Uh, yeah. Steve Martin. <laughs> what? Donald Trump. Yeah. Uh, who's this? Dan Acrod? Who's that guy? I don't know who that is. Acroid? Acroid? <laughs> the celebrity. Or the, the comedian. Yeah. There you go. Like, Acroid. Okay. Jerry Seinfeld. Yeah. Leslie Nielsen. Gene okay. Simmons. Seth Rogen. Uh, and that, Bruno Mars. What? Yeah. Wild. <laughs> I know. 
I, know. I knew that Burt Reynolds was on, was he on Playgirl? Yeah, he was on the, maybe the cover of Playgirl? That, like, infamous picture of him, like, with his giant mustache laying on, like, a bear skin, whatever. You'll see, like, people recreate it and stuff because it's so ridiculous. <laughs> He's, like, the hairiest person in the world. But I didn't realize he was on Playboy. And the only one that really surprises me, well, the Steve Mark Dan Aykroyd. If it was Dan Aykroyd, that one really surprises me. I yeah. don't know that he is on a lot of covers, to be quite honest. <laughs> Yeah, that was pretty funny. And then the last one I had, um, I just thought this was very odd and strange and also interesting. Um, in 2009, an issue of Playboy came out, and to celebrate the Simpsons' 20th anniversary, it featured a section with Marge Simpson in no. sexy poses, along with an interview entitled The Devil and Marge Simpson. <laughs> no. <laughs> I hate that so much. I do too. Why would you do that? That is like, can you imagine pitching that though? Like, okay, so we're going to have Marge Simpson and we'll even interview the car- cartoon. I don't, I don't get it. I don't get it either. But anyway, there's Was that some... the beginning of the fall of Playboy? Because it's got to be right. around that time. <laughs> this was in 2009. So they might have been okay. getting a little, a little desperate for content there. For sure. <laughs> All right. So those were some fun facts about Playboy. And uh, we hope you enjoyed them. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Before we go, we're going to play a promo for Military Murder with Margot. Well, it's Military Murder, but Margot is a host and she's awesome. You definitely want to check out this podcast. I had heard great things about it. I've listened to it. Love it. And make sure you check that out. Um, it will play right after you stop hearing our voices in a second. All right, guys, that's it for this week. We will see you back next week. Same time, same place, new story. Have a great week. Bye. Military Murder is a true crime show that pulls back the curtain on true crime cases in the military. Some of these cases get media attention while others are swept quietly under the rug in hopes that the pristine military persona is unaffected. If all of the murders that took place behind the military gates were exposed, we might realize that those who sacrifice their life for our freedom are as human as they come. Most are good, but some are not. Two years ago, the disappearance and subsequent murder of Vanessa Guillen placed military crime in the spotlight. Everyone was horrified that something like this could happen on a military installation. Vanessa's murder and her family's fight for justice brought these cases to the forefront. And that's where I pick up to tell you everyone else's story. As a 12-year veteran and former military attorney myself, I dig into cases just like Vanessa's, cases that occur around the world at the hands of soldiers, sailors, Marines, and airmen, and sometimes even military spouses and veterans. I cover cases about workplace violence, serial killers, mass murderers, family annihilators, but most of the cases I cover you've never even heard of. New episodes of Military Murder are available every other Monday, wherever you listen to podcasts. And with over 100 plus episodes and counting, you will have plenty of content to binge. Now go on and listen to Military Murder Podcast. Thanks so much for listening to the Moms and Murder Podcast. Make sure to check back with us next week for a new episode. You can also find us at momsandmurder.com where you can connect with us via social media. Please make sure you subscribe and give us five stars because giving us four stars would be a crime. Thanks so much.